From WLRN News, this is Detention by Design. I'm Danny Rivero. In late 2018, the wife of a man named Jesus Avila got in touch with me and asked if I would talk to her husband from a jail in Key West. Jesus Avila. And in that, this call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. Thank you for using IC Solutions. You may begin speaking now. Avila moved to the U.S. from Cuba at eight years old, but he never got his full citizenship. He was a permanent resident. And now, at 43 years old, Avila sat in immigration detention hours away from his family. The case of Jesus Avila is emblematic of a major shift in U.S. policy, a shift that subjected Cubans to immigration detention like they never had been before. The problem was, Avila had a conviction for cocaine possession back in 2012. And after getting married, he went to the Dominican Republic for his honeymoon. When he came back home to Miami, he was put in detention. Depending on how things went, Avila could soon be deported back to Cuba. They're ruining people's lives. Especially people that, streets of people that don't have any open warrants, any, you know, any, anything. Like me, you know, my, I don't have anything going on against me. Your wife was telling me, I mean, you were working and everything. Um, what would you do? What yeah. were you doing out here? I'm a, I'm a VDC manager, which is a virtual design and construction manager for a big construction company in Florida. And I'm also a realtor. You know, I have two careers. I have two homes, you know, and I, I take care of my disabled mother. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a gangster. I'm not a freaking rapist, you know. There's people here that have done things like that. So why am I next to these people? You know what I mean? You know, I love this country, you know, I, I, I would die for this country, even though I'm not a citizen, but this is not right. I speak better English than Spanish. You know, I know more about freaking the United States than I do of Cuba. I don't know anything about Cuba. I don't have family in Cuba. I don't know anybody in Cuba. Avila spent 37 days in detention and pleaded his case to an immigration judge. He was lucky. Late that night, he was released under temporary emergency relief. While he was out he passed a citizenship exam and became a U.S. citizen. For Cubans facing immigration detention especially, the presidency of Donald Trump was a game-changer. Cubans had long been given a preferred status, letting them come to the U.S. much more easily than people from any other nationality. In many ways, this had been the case since 1959 when Fidel Castro came to power during the Cold War. Hundreds of thousands of Cubans were allowed to come to the U.S., even before the Marielle boatlift in 1980. And I have to acknowledge here, both my parents came to the U.S. under these policies. I'm here literally because of the special treatment that Cubans have historically been given. One of the most controversial policies was what came to be known as the wet foot, dry foot policy, which went into effect in 1995 under President Clinton. It meant that virtually any Cuban who set foot on U.S. soil whether they came by boat or through the U.S.-Mexico border, they would get to stay in the United States. Days before leaving the White House in January of 2017, President Obama ended this policy. Some prominent Cuban-American Republicans like Florida Senator Marco Rubio had already been publicly calling the wet foot, dry foot policy into question. In a statement, Obama said, by taking this step, we are treating Cuban migrants the same way we treat migrants from other countries. 
Over the next two years under the Trump administration, the number of Cubans finding themselves in immigration detention went up more than 700%. Cubans were now being treated the same as everyone else. The Trump administration declared that essentially everyone was a priority for detention and deportations. And Cubans were shocked to learn that this special treatment they'd had for decades was over, and that this was the new reality. Independent journalist Serafin Moran fled Cuba after he says he was kidnapped and jailed for criticizing the communist government and his coverage. But when he pleaded for asylum in 2018, he was kept in detention for six months on the U.S.-Mexico border. And he says none of his friends could believe that he, a Cuban, was actually in detention for so long. It was only after the nonprofit Reporters Without Borders and other groups got involved that Moran was released from detention and allowed to stay in the U.S. President Biden was elected in 2020 after running on a platform of fundamentally changing how the immigration system works, including immigration detention and deportations. Haitian activists and immigration supporters were especially looking forward to this after four years of President Trump's hardline policies. In July of 2021, several things happened that in some ways brings us to a place that's reminiscent of the Marielle Boatlift and the huge exodus of Haitians in the 1980s. First, on July 7th, the world was shocked from the news out of Haiti. We bring you some breaking news now. And Haiti's President Jovenel Moïse has been assassinated at his home in Port-au-Prince. President Moïse had been ruling Haiti, the poorest country in the Americas, by decree after legislative elections due in 2018 were delayed in the wake of disputes. Four days after Haitian President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated, unprecedented anti-government protests erupted across dozens of cities in Cuba. The people called for an end to the communist dictatorship and for the political and economic rights that ending that system of government would bring. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel said the protesters would have to walk over our dead bodies to succeed in overthrowing the government. He called the protesters mercenaries that have sold themselves to the U.S. government. Diaz-Canel declared in a national broadcast that the, quote, order of combat has been given. And he called on pro-government groups to hit the streets and start cracking heads. Y por eso también aquí estamos convocando a todos los revolucionarios del país, a todos los comunistas, a que salgan a las calles en cualquiera de los lugares donde se vayan a producir estas provocaciones. Hoy, desde ahora y en todos estos días. Y enfrentarla con decisión, con firmeza, con valentía. La orden de combate está a la calle los revolucionarios. Since this ordered crackdown, hundreds of Cubans have been thrown in jails for participating in the protests. The government held mass trials that human rights groups say lack basic transparency and due process. Some protesters have been given sentences up to 30 years in prison for daring to voice their opinion in public. The aura of political repression has escalated 
as material conditions get worse. A lack of basic foods and medicines, rolling blackouts, and growing disillusion. If Cuba is a nightmare of the left, where the government is too strong, too centralized, too oppressive, Haiti is a nightmare of the right, where the government is too weak, forcing the population to rely on charities and nonprofits for basic services. Especially after the assassination of the president, kidnappings and gang violence rampage through the country. Overall, the conditions have become unlivable. I think it's pretty safe to say that we are seeing a trend upward in terms of numbers and illegal migration. Ryan Estrada is a petty officer at third class with the United States Coast Guard, and he handles public relations for the Coast Guard's Miami office. A lot of the countries that are coming here, we'll say specifically Cuba and Haiti, are obviously going through political and economical instabilities. And so they're, they're looking for an opportunity to get away from that life. The number of Haitians fleeing to the U.S. by boat right now is larger than the Coast Guard has seen in nearly 20 years. And for the first time in a long time, we're seeing Haitians actually land boats in the Florida Keys and in mainland Florida. And on the Cuban side of the equation, since October 2021, more Cubans have made it to the U.S. either by land or by water than the number who fled during the Marielle boat lift in 1980. Steve Drzewski is a lieutenant commander and pilot for the Coast Guard in Miami. So I got to Miami in 2019, um, and we didn't find a whole lot of migrant vessels uh, back in 2019, but over the last year especially, we've seen a large increase in the number of migrant vessels that we've been spotting out there. Today, Drzewski is piloting a Coast Guard flight that I'll be joining. We patrol, um, it's a couple thousand square miles of, of ocean. take off on a Coast Guard plane from Miami Opalaka Executive Airport. And in minutes, we're cruising above deep blue waters. Small islands and keys in the Bahamas start to appear below us. Analysts click zoom on the white caps of waves, trying to decipher if they're small boats getting tossed around as they take water. An endless ocean is splayed in muted color on the cockpit screen. In the middle, a bullseye. John Merchant is one of the Coast Guard analysts on the mission today. We're passing over Bahamian Islands called the Anguilla Keys. We'll find usually a lot of old wrecks on the islands. So we'll scan them, make sure that none of them look really fresh. Uh, we'll look for any SOSs or any sign of life. And then we'll coordinate if we do see someone or we do see, yeah, so those are older wrecks. This one's like pretty buried in the sand. So we know that that's been there a while. We just got a visual of what looks like a couple people on a stranded boat, which looks like it's barely, barely above the water. But they were really far away, so we're circling around on the plane, trying to come back and get a closer visual of them. The crew calls in a helicopter from mainland Florida, and we circle overhead until they arrive. Pilot Drzewski explains. Um, concern is uh, for the migrants' safety because uh, the vessel they're in is, is very unseaworthy at this point. They're taking on water. They're having trouble bailing water out of their, their vessel. 
Um, so for their own safety, the H-60 is going to send a rescue swimmer down and probably hoist them out one by one into the helicopter and then uh, bring them back to Key West. We're about 15 miles away from Quesal Island um, and we're about 75 or 80 miles away from Key West. How, how far are we from the northern coast of Cuba out here? One second, let me tell you. So we're about 45 miles north of the north coast of Cuba right now. The tiny boat looks no more than 10 feet long. And while the waters look calm from 1,500 feet in the air, when I look through the zoomed-in radar screen, it's clear that they're not calm at all. We can see the three passengers hugging onto each other as the boat is battered by waves. Hannah Boyce is also a Coast Guard pilot on the mission with us. You can see the swimmer has one of the migrants with the sling on. So he's getting them ready so they can get hoisted up into the, into the 60. So you can see now there's the 60 coming down. So he's going to you know, help them get all set up so they're going to be as safe as they could be. How many times have you seen something like this happen? This is my first time doing kind of like a joint, you know, uh, joint asset operation like this. So you can kind of see, you know, how important it is to like come and do these patrols because these guys, you know, they're so small, they're so tiny, a boat probably wouldn't see them if they're going by. Um, so it really is good that we can come out here and find them. The helicopter starts to pull the three passengers out from the boat, one by one by one. The journey that these people take is, is dangerous. Um, they, uh, they're willing to go, you know, 100 miles or so across open ocean and, and homemade unseaworthy rafts, um, and it can be very dangerous. Uh, so being out there, um, finding them, the whole crew, I think, feels like uh, we are out there saving lives as well. A few days later, I'm informed that the passengers were Cuban and that they've been sent back to Cuba. If they had made it to the U.S., instead of being picked up on the water, they likely would have been placed in detention. Funding for Detention by Design was made possible by the Shepherd Broad Foundation in honor of its founder, whose immigration story included detention at age 14, but also the warm embrace of the Miami community. In a lot of ways, we're still living in the world created by Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Like the fact that the Coast Guard still patrols waters off of Haiti and the Bahamas, looking for boats coming to the U.S. illegally. But that's not the only way we're still living in the shadow of President Reagan. When Reagan started to create a national network of immigration detention centers, a cottage industry of companies formed, offering to detain immigrants on behalf of the U.S. government. This is the origins of the private prison industry, a business model that's still hotly debated in 2022. We met Brianna Nofel in earlier episodes. She's the immigration detention researcher at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. And she pinpoints exactly where this private prison industry got started. So Corrections Corporation of America gets its first government contract 
to operate an immigration detention center for the INS in Houston and Laredo, Texas. And that's in 1984. And so when they win this Houston contract, they didn't have a facility yet. They just kind of got the deal. And so what they do is that they essentially purchase an old motel, a very old crumbling motel, and they like build a gate with some barbed wire around it and they put the detainees in that motel. Um, And kind of at that same time, a few different states are passing laws that are potentially expanding the role of private corrections companies. In the mid-80s, several states like Texas, Florida, and Tennessee started seeing an influx of private prisons. You can can turn a nice profit renting out your jail space to the federal government that you you don't get if you fill it with people from your community, right? And so now now that we see um, increasingly private prison companies running local jails, they're going to be even more profit-minded than probably your average sheriff or warden is going to be. So they're going to be even more interested in this idea of how do we, you know, How do we bring in the most profitable inmates? And it turns out that the most profitable inmates, at least in the 80s and 90s, appear to be immigrant detainees because they've got this federal money attached to them. In Florida, about 50 miles from where our story about immigration detention began in the small town of Immokalee, a tiny county government took the idea that money can be made from immigrants and ran with it. The Glades County government created a nonprofit organization in 2002 and used that nonprofit to sell bonds to Wall Street investors. The group raised $33 million for a new detention center. The idea was that in the long run, these investors would make money from immigration detention. And for the local government, it would amount to, quote, economic development for the area. This happened just as the Department of Homeland Security was created after the attacks on 9-11, a time when immigration detention was rapidly expanding. Immigrants being held in detention have federal money attached to them, and finding a way to capitalize on that made business sense. John Ahern, I'm the uh, president of uh, GCDC, which is Glades Correctional Development Corporation. John Ahern first started his role at the nonprofit because... He's also a county commissioner in Glades County. I am county commissioner. I am for another till November. I'm I'm retiring. I promised my wife that I would not run again, and I'm holding true to my word on that. He serves both as a county commissioner and in the nonprofit that runs the detention center with the goal of making money for investors. Under this arrangement, the line between the role of government and the role of investors is blurred. So they have just di- different investor groups. There's primarily there's two different groups that have probably 60 percent. And there's, you know, there's, there's some individuals that are involved in it. So it's a group that have a have a trustee that manages that for for the investors. So we meet with uh, him. I have a conference call every Wednesday with the trustee and, and the investors to keep them updated on exactly exactly what's going on. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, This detention center in Glades County came under scrutiny from activists. Activists largely based in Miami, about 110 miles away. I was undocumented for so many years, for 18 years. So sometimes I, you know, I feel like I can't, I could be there. Maria Bilbao is an organizer with the group American Friends Service Committee. And she was a lead coordinator in an effort to shut down the detention facility. I was organizing Cuban families that were in detention for two years. 
one year and a half. So I was organizing that because a lot of Cuban families start calling us and I realized of some of them were transferred to Glade. The problem with Glade was that Glade's detention is, was so far away, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And I think it gives a sense of the people who work there of impunity. And they think that nobody's watching them. Bilbao says during the course of the pandemic, she started to hear complaints about the conditions in the detention center, about lack of access to medical treatment, abuse, neglect, and overcrowding, when everyone was supposed to be social distancing to prevent the spread of COVID. At least 96 complaints were filed against the facility. For example, I remember one night that the woman texted me and letting me know, Maria, can you connect? We want to show you something. So they showed me food with worms. The facility is run properly. I mean, there's, you know, naturally the people are in jail and they, they don't really want to be there. So they're going to say a lot of things that are, you know, untrue. And they have people that, you know, carry their torch for them and, and not understand that. But uh, most everything is totally unfounded as far as, you know, any of the accusations that have been publicly, you know, talked about and people have read about and so forth. An ICE inspection from January of 2022 found that the facility was deficient in five of 19 categories that it tracks. A coalition of activists from across the country launched a campaign called Shut Down Glades. And over time, the pressure worked. Members of Congress sent letters to the Biden administration urging them to cancel a contract with ICE and stop sending immigrants to the facility. And in March, they did stop. There are currently no immigrants being held at the Glades County Detention Center. It was a win. It was a good feeling. It was a really good, good feeling, you know, that so many people pay attention. But the win for activists was a threat to private investors. The investors once had hundreds of immigrants in detention at this facility every day. But now, those hundreds of beds are sitting empty. Glades County Commissioner John Ahern says this puts the county and the investors in a tough spot. So, right now, they're trying to negotiate a contract with the Florida Department of Corrections to send Florida state inmates to the facility. For their part, the state says it has no plans to house inmates there just yet. Everything had been running, you know, it had been running pretty good, but uh, we've had, you know, basically there was a change in administration, a change in policies that, you know, and then, uh, you know, depending on who's running something, they make a decision on where they're going to have people and how many detainees they actually they have. So uh, we have suffered from that standpoint. We're in a situation right now where we're, we're losing money each month and we do not have enough customers to, uh, you know, pay the overhead that we have, but we're looking forward to trying to, you know, to, to get the contract with the state, which will give us some breathing room to, uh, you know, keep the facility running. I, the investors, they certainly don't, you know, they don't want it to have to close. I just want to pause on the fact that Ahern referred to detainees as customers. But customers usually choose who they want to do business with. That's obviously not the case with inmates or immigrants facing detention. 
the Glades County Detention Center became a real job maker thanks to all that federal money that came with immigrants in detention. Ahern says more than 60 people are employed through the nonprofit, plus more who have jobs with the Glades County Sheriff's Office, which manages the facility. And that's a big deal for a place like Glades County, a place that's sparsely populated and rural, in the heart of Florida's sugarcane region. It's a very good customer for our electric cooperative, Glades Electric, a good customer for the for the city, for water and sewer, uh, the employment that's there, it's an important part of our economy for Glades County. The, the detention center? The de- detention center, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't care about that, to be telling you the truth. I don't care about that because they are making money, suffering people, and like uh, violating human rights. Yeah, I don't care. It's all about money. It's all, all about money. Outrage about the treatment of immigrants at the U.S. border reaches a fever pitch in September of 2021. That's when images surface of Border Patrol agents on horseback rounding up Haitians at the U.S. border with Mexico at Del Rio. The images spark a huge street protest in Little Haiti and Miami. Residents claim that just like in years past, Haitians are being treated worse than any other group of immigrants, even after the political turmoil deepened in Haiti after President Moïse was assassinated. Michael Robert was born in Haiti, but has been a U.S. citizen since 2006. Right now, the country upside down. We don't have no president. We don't have no government. And United States know what is going on here. So they don't, they don't try to come in America for no reason. They have a good reason. Activist Marlene Bastien, who we met a few times in this series, holds up a bullhorn and revs up the crowd. They are just like the worst types of criminals and like animals. Reminiscent of the times of slavery, reminiscent of the civil rights era, and reminiscent of the early years of 1980s when I first arrived there, when police officers mounted under some of the most powerful, gigantic horses I've ever seen, tried to trample our brothers and sisters when we were standing up for freedom and equal treatment for Haitian refugees. Many of the Haitians who crossed the border at Del Rio were rounded up and deported back to Haiti by the Biden administration. That happened under a Trump-era policy that allowed for rapid deportations of migrants because they represented a public health threat during the COVID-19 pandemic. Other Haitians retreated back to Mexico, fearing they would be deported back to Haiti if they stayed in the U.S. Some were given parole to pursue their asylum cases in the U.S., and dozens were thrown into an immigration detention center in New Mexico. Is it right? No! Is it right? No! We are standing here together. We are using our collective voices to send a strong message to President Biden to tell him, number one, 
Free the Haitians now! Free the Haitians now! Free the Haitians now! Free the Haitians now! Freedom now! Stop racism! Freedom now! Stop racism! Freedom now! Stop racism! As of October 2022, Marlene Bastien is running for a county commission seat in Miami-Dade County. It's so bad in Haiti. Even the money we send to a family member is risky. When the person go to the, the store or to the bank to collect the money, he may get killed. And let me tell you what one of my friends told me. He's saying that, my wife is sick. I'm staying in a house with her. I know where I am, but when I'm going to buy the medicine, I don't know if I'm coming back. But the guy has no weapon. He doesn't, he just wants to get the medicine for his wife, but he may get kidnapped. Abel Jean-Simon Zephyr was among the first Haitians to come to the U.S. by boat almost 50 years ago. Today, he's living happily in the city of North Miami. He still has issues with U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti. And that's a criticism that cuts across party lines, both Democrats and Republicans. But most importantly, today, President Biden have a more responsibility to help us change the situation in Haiti. Why? The Haiti that I know the Haiti where I dream of is a free and democratic Haiti. And the United States have been on the wrong side. It's about time to correct it. He says the U.S. is making the same mistake now as it made in the 80s, supporting a bad government in Haiti. Michel Montas is a Haitian journalist who's been exiled three times over the years. Once in 1980, under Baby Doc, again in 1991, after a military coup, and again in 2003, three years after her husband, journalist Jean Dominique, was assassinated. We heard from Montas in an earlier episode, where she was interviewing a U.S. immigration official in 1980. And Montas says the situation in Haiti is worse now than it's ever been, even compared to life under the Tonton Makuts from the Duvalier years. And that's saying a lot. The situation has never been this bad. Never. You had gangs before. You had gang wars before. In 2004, you had uh, when uh, uh, Aristide's power was threatened and uh, the government in place was supporting the creation of gangs. It never got as bad as it is right now, where they actually are controlling all the access to the capital. You cannot go to the southern cities of Lekai, for instance, because they occupy the whole neighborhood of Martisson, which is the entrance to uh, the road to the south. Montas says the people fleeing the country right now on boats and through other methods are clearly fleeing a political problem, not simply an economic problem. And she says this has been tacitly supported by the United States and by the political powers the U.S. continues to back in Haiti. And she says that support from the United States comes no matter who occupies the White House and no matter what the facts on the ground look like. 
since the Monroe Doctrine, you know, Haiti has been uh, uh, considered as being in the backyard of the United States, like so many other uh, countries in the area. The fact that uh, recently uh, there was the support first to Jovenel Moïse at a time when, when Jovenel Moïse was uh, mandate was being questioned by a number of people. He was elected, but he was ruling the country more and more as an autocrat, uh, having put aside all major other powers within the, the government structure, the parliament, uh, the courts, and he was ruling by decree. Okay, And there was uh, a support, a US support then for Jovenel Moïse. Then Jovenel Moïse is killed, and that support uh, continues uh, towards Ariel Henry, which absolutely has no legitimacy and is completely absent. Is absent, uh, it does not control anything. Montas is referencing current acting prime minister, Ariel Henry, who was named by Jovenel Moïse to be prime minister before his assassination. The U.S. has steadily supported his government. It is a political situation because those gangs were actually supported, a lot of them, by either the government or by the business elite at the time they were created. In fact, one of those gangs, which is a confederation of gangs, was directly linked to the former president's people. And uh, that gang right now is fighting another gang in the Bel Air area to control the ports and to control a number of the economic activities of the country. So saying that uh, the economic situation and the political situations are not linked is absurd. Montas says the U.S. needs to stop detaining Haitians at the border. And it needs to stop deporting them back to a country that has completely fallen apart. It is a human rights problem, issue. And not welcoming them is a human rights violation. Fifty years after the first Haitians started arriving by boat, the state of Florida has been forever changed. An estimated 300,000 Haitian immigrants call the state home, which is probably an undercount. The city of Miami has been shaped by different waves of migration, from Black Bahamians in the early 1900s to Cubans fleeing the communist revolution, Nicaraguans escaping a civil war in the 80s, Venezuelans, Colombians, Jamaicans, Brazilians, you name it. In Miami-Dade County, more than half the residents were born in other countries. And this unique mix of cultures, languages, and cuisines has become the main economic engine of the third most populated state in the Union. Here's immigration attorney Ira Kurzban, who we met in earlier episodes. When I came to Miami in 1977, Miami was a dead city. Lincoln Road was boarded up. South Beach was dead. It was a totally dying city. If it wasn't for the infusion of Cubans here and their ability to extend to Latin America because of the immigration policy that favored them, that said, we're going to give you benefits, we're going to let you stay here, gave them the opportunity to expand outward, you know, we became the first Latin American city, right? Miami is the first Latin American city here. And how did that all happen? That economic miracle happened. Uh, it happened because of the Cuban community. It happened because of a welcoming policy with respect to Cubans. Unfortunately, 
we didn't have the same policy with the Haitian community. We've always made it difficult for Haitians to come. And sometimes those things become self-fulfilling prophecies if we make it more difficult. But if you look at Miami in 1977 and you look at Miami today, the only explanation for that is the immigrant influx. Today, there are more than 130 immigration detention centers spread across the United States. In fiscal year 2021, an average of nearly 16,000 immigrants were held in detention every day. And so far in fiscal year 2022, the number's gone up to the early 20,000s. That's significantly lower than the peak of more than 50,000 per day in 2019. But a big reason for the drop is that the federal government forced immigrants to remain in Mexico and expedited deportations without letting people apply for asylum. Federal courts recently ruled that the Biden administration can take steps to end both those Trump-era policies. But for the time being, they're still in effect. For his part, President Biden has pushed for Congress to cut funding for immigration detention by about 25 percent potentially winding down the entire system that we've been talking about in this series. Instead, he's pushing for alternatives to detention. Things like forcing people seeking asylum to wear ankle monitors. The economies of small towns in rural areas like Glades County in Florida depend on money they get from immigration detention. These facilities tend to be in rural and conservative areas, where residents are more likely to support hardline immigration policies. But with immigration numbers dropping over the last few years because of multiple factors, including the COVID-19 pandemic, companies are begging for more immigrants to fill key jobs. So the U.S. is sending mixed signals. Americans tend to talk about immigration only when it becomes a domestic policy issue, when thousands of people start showing up uninvited. But why did they flee their home countries to come here? At least part of the answer lies with U.S. foreign policy, political decisions about which governments should be cut off at the knees and which should be propped up. News clips in this episode came from the BBC. Detention by Design is a production of WLRN News. It's edited by Alicia Zuckerman. We also had editing help from Tracy Agbass and Tim Paget. This final episode was also edited by Jessica Bakeman. Thanks, too, to the rest of the WLRN newsroom. Fact-checking by Amy Tardiff. Jacqueline Charles is our consultant. Engineering and sound design by Merritt Jacob. Detention by Design is reported and produced by me, Danny Rivero. I want to give a special thanks to everyone who spoke to me for this series. Some of these stories were not easy to tell. And yet so many people opened up to us and let us bear witness to the things that they saw and things that they lived. I also want to give a special thanks to all the WLRN newsroom, including Tom Hudson, who gave me the green light to move forward with this ambitious project. Everyone at WLRN played a major role in making this happen. Thanks, too, to all the researchers and historians who spoke to me and who have written about these topics. A big thank you to the Miami-Dade Public Library System, 
Staff at the main library supported tons of research I did for this project. In particular, the archives of the Black newspaper, the Miami Times, were super important when it came to fact-checking and making sure we got everything right. Raquel Coronel Uribe helped me get a really important interview for this series. So thank you, Raquel. And special thanks to the Shepherd Broad Foundation, which fully funded this podcast project. And one last thing. It's support from the public that helps WLRN do the work that we do. If you have the means, I ask that you share a donation with us to help us keep going. And if you've already donated, or if you regularly give donations, thank you. We could not do what we do without you.